0: Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. In today's episode, Convention of State's President Mark Meckler discusses the political war for America's soul and the constitutional plan to win it. The speech was given in 2019 at a South Dakota town hall. Okay, so I got to share a couple of personal stories to start. And the first is about this hat. Okay, so I grew up in a place where you don't see many of these hats, which is Los Angeles, California, right? I do not look like the average Angelino, But I grew up in a family where my dad always dressed like a cowboy. And this is a weird thing, we just lived in the suburbs in a place called the San Fernando Valley. If you remember back in the 80s, the whole valley girl phenomenon, that's where I grew up. And my girlfriend sounded exactly like that. The stereotype was true. And my dad always had a big handlebar mustache, and he wore cowboy boots, and he had a cowboy hat. And the strangest thing about that to me was that it wasn't strange at all. Like in hindsight, it seems really strange, but that's just who my dad was when I was growing up. And the reason that he was like this is because when he was 18 years old, he stumbled into a charity organization called the Foundation for the Junior Blind. So he was helping blind kids, and he would go out to this camp that they had outside the San Fernando Valley, and every spring he was the only guy dumb enough to spring break the horses. Right? So the horses had been out on pasture all late fall and winter and into early spring, and if you're going to put blind kids on the backs of horses, they got to be well broke horses. right? And so he was the only city slicker kid stupid enough to get on the backs of these horses repeatedly and through that process he just came to fall in love with the western ethos and the cowboy ethos and so he started wearing the cowboy hat grew the handlebar mustache and that's just how i grew up and because of that i fell in love with the whole western ethos and i didn't grow up dressing like this but a long time ago now going back 30 years roughly right around the time my wife patty and i met i was living in a in san diego And if you think of San Diego, California, you probably think of palm trees and beaches and stuff like that. I was living in Far East County, San Diego, about 3,600 feet in elevation in a little three-room hunting cabin that was built in the late 1800s. Had three horses out there. And that's really what got me to start dressing like this and wearing the hat and the boots. Because in our community, literally, we had more horses than people. I used to ride into town. We had a tiny little grocery store and a little post office and the local bar and I used to ride into town to get my groceries on horseback. And so I just started wearing this kind of clothing, and then Patty and I, about 25 years ago, moved to a little rural community in Northern California called Grass Valley, and a lot of cowboys and ranchers and farmers and loggers up there, and so I just fit right in up there. So I've always dressed like this. And when I started doing politics, I started in the Tea Party movement in 2009, right? And when that started, I started traveling all over the country, and when I would travel, I would travel, always dressed like this. And there was actually a reason. You know, everywhere I went, I saw people rising up in politics and they would really polish themselves up and they'd get the fancy suits. And then if they started to be on TV, they started to be a certain way because they were on TV. And they started to become the things that frankly, I despised. I watched them become stars. I watched them gravitate towards powerful people and fancy parties and, you know, wonderful hotels and fancy restaurants. And I just never wanted to be that person. It was really important to me to stay tied to who I was. And I can tell you when you wear a hat like this, and you go to New York City, or you go to Washington DC, you do not fit in. Yeah. Right, you just don't. And I wanted to not fit in. That was really important to me. If I walk down the street in New York City, which Patty and I will be there Sunday and Monday, like you heard I'm doing Fox, and I walk down the street in this hat, what will happen, it's the weirdest thing, is you walk down the street, And I'm walking through the crowd, and you can picture people going by me, and behind me I hear a cowboy. Oh, look at the cow, that's a cowboy. Did you see the cowboy? Wow, is that a cowboy? It's like they've never seen somebody in a cowboy hat. It's the most amazing thing. So that is the real reason why I wear the cowboy hat. I don't want to become those things that I despise. But the number two reason, and the totally self-serving reason that's so amazing about wearing a cowboy hat, and I challenge you to do this if you've never done it, If you travel wearing a cowboy hat, I promise you, people will be 10 times nicer to you than if you're not wearing a cowboy hat. It's the most amazing phenomenon. If I walk up to the check-in counter at Delta Airlines, which is my airline of choice, they will say, Hey, cowboy, how's it going? Great to see you. Love your hat. If I take the hat off and I walk up, they say, Hey, how can we help you today? Right? I get on the airplane and the stewardesses are like, hey cowboy, I love your hat, how's it going? Can we get you anything? Everywhere I go. You know, I get the privilege to travel with Tom Coburn. You guys know who Senator Coburn is? First time I traveled with Tom, we did like a three or four state tour. We're all over the country and our final stops are in Texas. And believe it or not, there's not a lot of guys that wear hats in Texas. I think they're self-conscious about the cowboy thing. So we're in Texas and we're in the airport and we're in Dallas, we're at Love Field in Dallas, Texas. And somebody walks up to me out of the balloon, and says, I love your hat. That's a great hat. Can I take a picture with you in the hat? And Tom turns to me after the person leaves. He goes, what is it with you? And I said, what do you mean? He said, everywhere we go, everybody is just nice to you. And they just want to talk to you. And if they need directions, they act like I'm not here. And they ignore me. And they ask you. And it's just everywhere we go. And he goes, no offense, but I'm a senator. I'm kind of used to people doing that to me. And I said, it's the hat, man, it's the hat. And so that's the deal, that is really the honest truth. I wear the hat when I travel, it's kind of a hassle. If you've ever traveled with a cowboy hat, there's no good place for it on an airplane and stuff. And sometimes I'm going to do TV, and I can't wear it on TV because the lighting guys hate it and everything. But I always have it with me because people are so much nicer to me. And I think there's a reason that people are nicer when you wear a cowboy hat because a cowboy hat attaches us to a part of our history that we all love. You're kind of that Wild West, the cowboy ethos, your word is your bond, right? And people look at a cowboy and think honesty and integrity. It's really amazingly short period of our history, like kind of the Wild West history. It's like 30 years, 35 years really, when we had the open plains and the great cattle drives and all that stuff. It's not a long part of American history, but it's a part of our history that we're really attached to at a very deep, heartfelt level. We love that part of our history. And as a nation, we love our history generally. We're all also really attached to the history that goes all the way back to the founding that Mark was talking about so eloquently earlier. We have an emotional attachment to that history, and I would describe it as almost a genetic attachment to our history. We sometimes, we don't know that history, Mark talked about that, we're losing that history, but we still know that we love it. We're attached to this idea of the founding fathers and the American Revolution and the fight for that. And it's something that I've studied a lot Over the last nine years again i told you i went to school in los angeles grew up in los angeles so i didn't get much real history in the public schools in los angeles how many of you guys have read more history in the last few years than you learned in school any of you getting this is an amazing phenomenon that i see all over the country right now this is new in america that there's this love of and this idea that we have to figure it out and understand and remember our history it's super healthy and really thank God that this is happening. Every room I go into all over the country, large or small, if I sit at a dinner table with a family, or I go to a room full of people like this, people raise their hands when I say that. And the same is true for me. And so I've learned an incredible amount about our history that I didn't know. I've learned it in the last nine years. I've learned incredible things about our history in the last nine months that I didn't know for the rest of my life. And I'd love if you'll indulge me for a few minutes to share some of that history with you. In fact, what I'm going to try and do is something that's impossible. I'm going to take us over the entire arc of human history from the very beginning to today. We're going to do that in under 30 minutes. All right, you guys time me. I only have 30 minutes to do this. So here's the deal. Here's how I start the arc of human history. Human history, of course, starts biblical human history with Genesis and the garden and the fight between good and evil. That's been going on forever throughout all of human history. And the arc of human history is interesting. There's a pendulum that swings back and forth from the arc of human history. And that pendulum swings between really, really bad tyranny and just moderately bad tyranny. That's the arc, it doesn't swing back and forth between justice and liberty and tyranny. That's not the arc of human history. It swings halfway and stops and swings halfway, so we get really horrible bad tyrants, really terrible times in human history and then they're just sort of bad times in human history. The most amazing exception to that is our country. This incredible experiment in liberty and self-governance and freedom called the United States of America. It broke the arc of human history. And we swung towards liberty in a way never seen before in human history. We swung towards self-determination. The Lord gave us free will, and this is the only country on Earth that's ever been established around the premise that we have the right to exercise that free will, to pursue happiness. So this is an aberration in human history. And it's important we remember that because this is not the pattern. This is not the normal way of things. And if we don't fight for it, if we don't understand the normal arc of human history, if we don't understand how exceptional we are, then we are destined to lose that. Because history tells us this is not the normal state of things. This is not equilibrium. So we have to know our history and we have to fight for it. So when we talk about the history of the country, often we go back to the founding, right? So we go back to the days of the American Revolution, the days of the Declaration of Independence that that Mark spoke about, Patrick Henry's speech, which I love so much. We talk about the Founding Fathers, we talk about Madison and Adams and Jefferson, these incredible people. Some people we don't talk so much about, Mason, who didn't sign the Constitution but was the guy that brought the most to convention, Colonel George Mason from Virginia. These were the men that crafted these documents. These are the men that were the leaders. These are the men that we know about in American history. The question is, where did they come from? This is a question that fascinated me. If, if all these men were so great, and they all rose up and did all these incredible things, they declared independence, and then a different group of men wrote the Constitution, how did we get these people? What was the special brew, right? What were they drinking? What was in the water, the weather, or the times that made these men into who they were? There's not a lot of history about that. You know, have you ever contemplated the question, what is the time period between, you talked about the Mayflower and the Pilgrims, and and what about the Mayflower Compact and the time between that and the American Revolution? There's a time period in American history there There's not much written about that time period. You know, about five years ago, somebody asked me the question, how long was it between the Mayflower Compact and the actual American Revolution itself, the beginning of the revolution? And my answer was a blank space in my brain. There was literally nothing there. I didn't even have a guess, I just didn't know. I'd never learned anything about that. What happened during that time period? I can't think of any major historical events that took place during that time period. Nothing I read about in my history books was nothing happening. We're in a state of suspended animation, and so I took a wild guess. Literally, I said, I don't know, 50 years, 75 years? I just didn't know, and the real answer, the closest you can get to a very specific answer is 158 years. That's a long time. That's over five generations. Five generations of people on this continent doing what? What were they doing? I would describe their fundamental task was learning to govern themselves, right? The crown, England, engaged in a period of what was called benign neglect, essentially, historically. In other words, we were so far away from England, they couldn't really do much to govern us. And so I think some of the founders said they were too arrogant to actually govern us well, right? And they were too far away to really govern us at all. And so we had to figure it out, and we had some institutions because we brought those from England. We, we knew how town councils worked and things like that, so we had some formal structural institutions. We understood how courts worked and common law and things like that, but we stitched them together in our own way. This is an extraordinary period in American history, and if you're interested in it, I recommend a historian by the name of Bernard Balin, Bailyn. B-A-I-L-Y-N. Balin's now 101 years old, lives in New Hampshire, still alive. Amazing man. So he wrote about that period in American history. That actually, he was recommended to me by uh, Dr. Larry Arnett, at Hillsdale when I asked about who writes about this period in American history. So this is something I learned recently about that period in American history. Now remember, we're going back before the Revolution. My feeling about the American Revolution is one of revulsion At the British government and British tyranny and how much we hated the British and we wanted to overthrow the system of British government that's how I learned it right I mean it was the Americans versus the British but that's actually not the reality when you actually read the real history and what the great patriots were talking about they considered themselves not American but quintessentially British I'm talking about the men that we know that fomented the American Revolution considered themselves proudly British. They believed the British Empire, the greatest empire ever to grace God's green earth. That's how they referred to it. You know what they thought about the British system of governance? This to me was the most incredible thing. The best system of governance ever devised by man for the preservation of liberty. The founders believed this, yet they overthrew that system of governance. To me that's just an extraordinary revelation to realize this. So why, if they believed that system of governance was so beautiful and so perfect and the best ever to preserve liberty, why did they find themselves compelled to overthrow? And the answer is this, because they stated that it was overrun by crony capitalism. Does that sound familiar? I mean, honestly, when I say that, it gives me chills because these are new revelations to me. What they said is the three, they had a separation of powers in the British government. We think that that's just something new from us. They separated their powers. Thusly, they said they had the monarchy, the crown, right? They had the House of Commons representing the common people. And then they had the courts that administered the laws. And they considered those separation of powers. And they said the problem with the British system of government is not that it's design; It's that those three powers have merged into one and there no longer are checks and balances between the three branches. Does this sound familiar to anybody? I'm reading Balin and I'm thinking, I didn't know any of this, this is unbelievable. The founders were having the exact same feelings that you and I are having today. The courts, are they independent or do they simply promote the expansion of government today? They promote the expansion of government today, right? Does Congress appropriately contain and exercise its own powers and check the power of the presidency? No, not anymore. Is the president required to make a declaration of war, which Congress approved? Not anymore, right? So all the branches have essentially become one. They just are the federal government. And this is the same exact thing that the founders were complaining about. They complained about the great power concentrated in parliament itself and how parliament exercised influence over the king and they traded influence back and forth and people could buy judgeships and people who were powerful and moneyed remained powerful and moneyed and their power and their money grew to the detriment of the common people. This is really important to me anyway because what I realize is I'm talking about the period in pre-revolutionary America and England. And I believe that today, we live in a pre-revolutionary time in America. The same sentiments being expressed by the founders at that time, the same sentiments, by the way, were being expressed in England herself, are being expressed today here in the United States of America. We believe, and rightly so, and this is not partisan, by the way, whichever side of the aisle you sit on, that we send people to Washington DC to do the things that we send them to do, and then they don't do those things. Right? They're influenced by others outside of our control, others who have more money, others who have power and influence in Washington, D.C. And that's what we believe, the same thing that the founders believed back in the pre-revolutionary period. So this is really, really important. What it meant to them was they were losing their right of self-governance. This is the essence of Americanism, It's this idea that we are destined to, that we have the God-given right to govern ourselves. By the way, this is different than any other country on Earth. I'm sure I would be lambasted by the left for saying that, but we are exceptional, especially in this way. If you've ever traveled internationally, and if you were to go to a restaurant, say I've been all over the world, you go to a restaurant in Japan, I've been to Japan extensively, go to a restaurant in Japan and you walk in, and you walk in with a party of 10 people, And you walk in and you realize there are three tables over there and if we move those tables together that we can sit, all of us, 10 people at one table. And if you did that in the United States and you saw those, you'd move those tables, right? We'd move the chairs around and whatever we need. If you were to do that in Japan, everybody would look at you like you're out of your mind. If you were to do that in France, they would scream at you for moving the tables because how dare you, you are not in charge. You're not the big man, go ask the boss, ask the manager. You're not allowed to fix things for yourself. The culture of doing it ourselves is an Americanism. It's different, it is American culture, this idea that we govern ourselves, we can handle ourselves, we can fix things ourselves. If you want to see it in the most modern sense, look at what, ha- what is happening in Texas and Florida right now. Right, incredible, great human tragedy, property damage, suffering. And what happens is immediately Americans get together without any official sanction, without anybody to tell them what to do and start fixing things. Themselves. This is unique in the American experience. It's not like this anywhere else in the world. That's in your DNA. You don't even think about that. You don't have to think about that. Your neighbors need help, you go help them. Something's broken in your neighborhood, you help fix it. This is just how we are as Americans. There's a story in American history that illustrates this better than almost anything I know, and I'm gonna go now from pre-revolutionary America to revolutionary America. Mellon Chamberlain was a historian that was collecting the stories of the original Minutemen, the guys who fought at Lexington and Concord. Chamberlain is collecting these stories throughout his entire life. He starts when he's 26, 25 years old, travels around the country, and he realizes something, which is, you know, he's now, it's the mid-18, early to mid-1800s, and what he realizes is if he doesn't collect these stories, they'll be lost. He doesn't have the benefit of YouTube or tape recorders or anything. So somebody has to write these stories down. If you think about it, this story comes from 1843. In 1843, the, any Minutemen remaining would be in their late 80s and early 90s, average life expectancy was 54. So there's not a lot of them left at that point, right? So he's traveling around the country, he's collecting these stories, and he happens across Mellon Chamberlain in North Carolina. Chamberlain was a captain in the Continental Army, fought at the first battle. Uh, Preston, sorry. Preston is a, is a captain in the, in the Army, fought at the very first battle. And so Chamberlain happens across his path and he starts to ask him a series of questions. If you look this up on on the internet, the story is much better than I could possibly tell it in much longer. And you've got Mellon Chamberlain actually telling this story in the church in Danvers, right? And he's telling the story to the sons of the American Revolution on the anniversary, April 17th of the start of the American Revolution. He's telling the story in 1843. And he tells them the story about interviewing Levi Preston and him asking Preston a series of questions. And he starts before he tells the story by explaining that way back then he knew so little about the American Revolution because of what he had been taught in school that he asked all the wrong questions. He knows the same things, or he knew the same things about the American Revolution that all of us in this room were taught about the American Revolution. The same wrong teachings. And Chamberlain now is trying to correct what he was taught and what he was wrongly asking about. And so he comes across Levi Press and he asks him this series of questions. He says, when you went out to face those redcoats this day, what did you mean by going out to fight? Did you fight because of the Stamp Act? Were you offended by having to buy those stamps and place them on all the documents? And Preston says, I understand Governor Bernard locked him in the armory. I'm sure I never bought one of them. So he says, okay, well, okay, so this guy didn't buy any stamps. So he asks him, were you reading the great revolutionaries like Sidney and Locke? And he said, never heard of those men. We read the Bible, Catechism, Psalms, and the Almanac. The men you speak of, I've never heard those names. And he asked them, Were you suffering under the Stamp Act? I mean, under the tea tax. Was it the tea tax that was causing you to revolt? And he said, Never drank a whit of it. The boys threw it all in the harbor. And so he says, Well, maybe it was the oppression. It was the heavy hand of British tyranny that finally just drove you to go out and fight the redcoats. And he said, Oppression never felt any of it. And so he asked them, what was it that brought you to the field of battle that day? And I want to provide some context to these questions. I want you to remember what it was like for those men to go fight the British Army. Levi Preston was a farmer. He was not a warrior. He was not a soldier. He had a family. All he was was a farmer. And so what would drive a man like that to go out and fight? And in context, it's as if I said that there's a battalion of Marines with all their weaponry coming to the center of Rapid City today, and I'd like you all to go home and get whatever arms you have, we're going to fight them. It's crazy. What they did was crazy. And so he's asked the question, what is it that brought you to the field of battle that day? And I think Levi Preston answers with the best answer I've ever heard in all of American history. As much as I love Patrick Henry, or Sam Adams, or George Washington, any of the eloquent things they said, the simplicity of Levi Preston sums it up. He says, when we went out to face them redcoats that day, this is what we meant. Them redcoats, they intended, or we, them redcoats intended, I'm sorry, I'm butchering it here, what he said is, when we went out to fight the field that day, we intended, we've intended. we always governed ourselves and we always intended to. And them redcoats intended that we shouldn't. That's it. When we went out, we knew we'd always governed ourselves and we always intended to, and them redcoats intended that we shouldn't. That is a succinct summary of the American political philosophy in action. I believe back then, but I also believe right now, The sense of unease that you and I have today about politics in the United States of America is that we have always governed ourselves and we always intended to, and you know what? They, in Washington, D.C., think that we shouldn't. They're pretty clear that we shouldn't. In fact, they don't care what we think. D.C., by the way, to me, stands for doesn't care or don't care, because they don't care a whit about what you think. We elect them, we send them to Washington, D.C., We tell them what we want them to do. They make promises that they're going to do those things. And then, do they do them? They don't do them. 72% of Americans today say that the federal government is too big and does too much. So are they shrinking the federal government? Nope. Right? You've got 8% of people approve of Congress today. 8%. Who are those people, by the way? Like congressmen and their families and people who work for them? I think that's an incredibly high number, actually. Only 8% of people think that Congress is doing a good job today. Are they going to change what they're doing? Do we see any change in their behavior? No, they don't care. They've become entirely disconnected from the American people. This is incredible, so in other words, what that means is we no longer govern ourselves. So how did this happen? How did this come to be? We've talked about Pre-American Revolution, we've, now we're talking a little bit about the American Revolution, what motivated people into the American Revolution. How did we get to this point where suddenly it feels so out of control? Where they're telling us what they want us to do instead of the other way around. How did we get here? And I'm going to point to a particular point in history. I'm going to jump way ahead, and I think there is what I would describe as the cataclysmic year in American political history, the worst year in American political history. And I don't think there's any argument about what is the worst year in American political history. I'm not talking about the first election of Barack Obama, just to be clear. Uh, There you go. I understand that might have come to some people's minds. What I'm talking about is the year 1913. 1913, incredible year in American political history because this is the rise of the progressives and the pinnacle, I would argue, of the progressive movement. This is where the progressives transform our society in a way never before imagined. Woodrow Wilson is the first president to openly speak against the United States Constitution. Imagine that, an American president talking about his disdain for the Constitution that keeps government from doing the things that it can and should do. It's outrageous. Unfortunately, a lot of the American people buy into it, and in 1913, we get a few amendments to the Constitution. 1913, we get the 16th Amendment. 16th Amendment imposes the federal income tax, or actually legitimizes the federal income tax on the American people. Now, look, I'm not saying this is a tax protester. I'm not saying that there isn't money that needs to flow to the federal government. Federal government has certain enumerated, limited duties they have to do. We have to pay for that. I understand that. But the founders intended specifically that there would never be a financial relationship between you and me and the federal government. That that relationship should always be filtered through the states. And so when they reached, excuse me, directly into our pocketbooks and started taxing us directly, they broke the power of the states. This was intentional. So now they have a direct financial relationship with us, they don't have to run that through the states anymore. They don't have to care what the states think because they can get their sustenance from directly from the people. So that's a major problem. We also get the 17th Amendment. This is one I didn't know about until recently, five, six years ago. 17th Amendment provides for the direct election of United States senators by the people. You know what, that sounds really good actually, right? Just the, the basic narrative of that, isn't it awesome? We elect our own senators. That's representative democracy, right? Well, here's the problem with it. It breaks the founders formula because here's what the founders intended. The House of Representatives is the people's house. It belongs to you. People are elected, as Mark said, every two years they have to stand in front of you and get reelected or elected for the first time. That's where representation at the federal level is intended to be close to the people the people's house. And what the founders intended the Senate to be for was the senators were to represent the state legislatures in Washington, D.C. Think about how different that is. So the senators originally are appointed by your state legislature. Think of the power that gives your state legislature the governing body closest to you over your senators. And imagine this. Imagine if you still appointed your senators. And imagine if your senator comes home from Washington, D.C. and says this to your state legislature. My fellow legislators, I am so excited to announce that the new bill that we just voted for and passed in Washington, D.C. imposes hundreds of millions of dollars of costs on you, and you have absolutely no say in how this is executed. Isn't this incredible? That's called an unfunded mandate, by the way. This is what they do all the time. They impose them on you. They impose them on your state government. And you and your government have no choice about it. And under the, the scheme prior to the 17th Amendment, that person who came home and gave that speech before their state legislature would be fired. They would simply have said, I'm sorry, you're no longer our senator, go home and hang your head in shame and don't show your face around here anymore. And they would pick the the next person. They'd say, Lynn, you're our next Senator. And you know what they would tell Lynn her job is? This was the job of the Senate. It was the easiest job in the world. They would said, go to Washington DC and say, no. That's it. That was really their main job. The Senate was created because the founders understood that the federal government would absolutely, by human nature, according to all of human history, Mark said they all knew their history, all of human history says central government centralize. That's what they do best. They accrete power to themselves. And so what they wanted is the senators to be able to go to Washington, D.C. And when the House said, hey, you know what, we think it would be an awesome idea, or the, or the president said, we think it'd be an awesome idea if we start to do all this neat and wonderful stuff and take money away from people and take And the senators would just go, mm, no, no, you're not gonna do that. Well, we'd like to impede the power. No, you're not gonna do that. We're going to form the EPA so the EPA can tell you what to do with, no, nope, you're not going to do that, no, sorry. And we're going to have the FDA so that we make it hard, no, nope, you're not going to do that, you're not allowed to do. That's what senators were meant to do, Is the coolest job ever, right? Go be the naysayers in Washington, D.C. And when we change that to direct election of senators, here's what's happening. Again, it's not because people are bad, it's because people are driven by incentives. So what's the incentive of a United States senator today? Is it to protect state power? Well, where's the senator's power? Is it here, at home, in your state? No, their power's in Washington, D.C. Do they get more powerful if there's more power in D.C. or more power at the state level? If it's in D.C., right? So humans, we just operate according to incentives, so we've incentivized senators to want power in Washington, D.C., to want money in Washington, D.C., to want recognition in Washington, D.C. So this is the way your Senate is now wired. So that's the 17th Amendment comes in 1913. We also get in 1913, one of the ones that most people don't even pay attention to, don't know about, the Fed is formed in 1913. We get this weird quasi-governmental agency that's outside of any kind of real supervision and, and they're just outside operating in some fantastical realm where they get to control our currency and control our monetary system. Nobody really knows what goes on. There's no audit of the Fed, so that comes in 1913. And then the last one, which almost nobody talks about, is a really interesting one to me, again, talking about the, the scope of our government, how our government works. So 435 members in the House of Representatives, right? That's, everybody knows that number. Why? It's a weird number. It's just a weird number, 435. Where's that number come from? The answer is in 1913, there were 435 members of the House of Representatives, and Congress said, okay, that's enough. That's it. Prior to that, every 10 years, according to the census, there was a reassessment done, a realignment done, and representatives were added to the House of Representatives based on the population growth in any given state according to a formula. In fact, according to that original formula today, if we had that formula in place, there would be roughly. 6,220 members of the House of Representatives. Now some of my friends on the left when I say this say, oh that's ridiculous because then how would they get anything done? And I say, awesome, it's perfect. That's what the founders intended, they didn't want it to be easy. They did not want it to be easy to pass legislation. In fact, the House was supposed to be roiling and broiling with controversy and disagreement, and it was supposed to be very hard to get anything done. They didn't expect Congress to be passing hundreds and thousands of laws, never expected. So this is the problem that was created in 1913. Now there's a lot more than that. These are structural problems though. I want you to notice what I'm pointing out. I'm not telling you that we have bad policies. Notice that I'm not talking about should we have universal health care versus free market health care. Those are policy debates and they're important and we should have them, but that's not what I'm talking about, right? I'm not talking about who gets elected to Congress, right? I'm not talking about gerrymandering. I'm not talking about money. and po- These are all issue things, right? What I'm talking about is the structure of our system of governance. This beautifully beautifully detailed and laid out system that I personally believe was divinely inspired. Madison in his room alone, pouring over these books, the hundred plus books that Jefferson had sent him, these men who knew human history from the Bible on forward, who had studied every system of governance ever known to man, devised this incredible, beautiful, well-balanced system, and then we screwed it up. Because we're humans, it's what we do, so we screwed it up. Okay, so that's 1913, and on forward what happens is this. We start to expand the power of government, really post 1900, and this starts in the late 1800s, but post 1900s is when it really picks up steam. And this idea that big government is good government takes on a life of its own, it's incredible. The progressives take over, they start spreading this idea through our schools, so this is incredible. I want you to think about that time span, 1913 roughly to today, just over 100 years, four generations say, right? Four and a half generations. And this has been going through our public schools. So they teach us, you and me, whether if you got some gray hair like me or you're much younger, they're teaching the same thing, which is government is good, right? Big government is good. Bigger government is better. If we could just take one more dollar out of your pocket, everything would be okay. If we could just have one more program, nobody would be hungry, right? If we could just have one more program, every kid would get straight A's. This is what the schools teach us. And they teach us from the time we're this big until you go through postdoctoral education. All the way, everybody agree with that? That's what the schools are doing? Okay. Number, and I'm gonna, this is not negative. I'm gonna make you hopeful with this, so bear with me. Number two is the media. right? Is the media teaching us that exact same thing? This has been going on as long as we've had mass media. I mean, people talk about the media wasn't so bad and there wasn't so much conflict when you just had the three major networks. That's because they just all told us the same lie, right? The conflict, the underlying conflict still existed, but CBS, ABC, NBC, you could throw in public broadcasting, they're all telling us big government is good, government is good, Washington DC is good, bigger government is better, one more dollar solves everything. So we've got, government, we've got the uh, schools telling us, we've got the media telling us. How about government? What do they say about government? Does government ever tell us, you, you, when was the last time that the president stood up there and really made his thing that I'm going to reduce the size and scope of government? So we had Ronald Reagan actually seriously said a lot of that, right? Before that, Coolidge. Coolidge is actually the only one in American history that accomplished it actually shrunk the government on his watch. Reagan couldn't accomplish that. And then you have Trump saying some stuff about it, but he seems to be a pretty big spend and freewheeling kind of a guy when it comes to reality. So for the last 100 years plus, you have the education system, you have the media, and you have government itself telling us that big government is best. Now here is the incredible thing. Today, today, after all of that 100 years of propaganda, 72% of Americans say that the federal government is too big and does too much. How is that possible? I mean, that should not be possible. It really shouldn't be. We should be a socialist paradise by now. Nobody should buy into the idea of limited government or self-governance or freedom and liberty from big government or libertarian. Nobody should buy those concepts because we've been propagandized at every level from the time we're kids till we go to the grave by all these different segments of society who all have influence over us that what we believe in our hearts is wrong. But we still believe it. It's still the majority of Americans, 72%. That's not just Republicans, by the way. They don't have numbers that big. That's not even Republicans and independents, by the way. So this is an incredible, miraculous thing. And I argue, going back to what Levi Preston said, it's because we have in our DNA this thing that we have always governed ourselves and we always intend to. People have not yet let go of that. And so I think, to me, that is incredibly hopeful. It's a very powerful thing that that still exists in our DNA. So the question is, what do we do about it? This is where I'm gonna close out and we'll go to a panel and some Q&A. What do we do about it? So I know what I've been doing I, I, for the last nine years, since the start of the Tea Party movement, eight and a half years, I've been fighting. I first started fighting, just fighting, I don't know, screaming and yelling, throwing a temper tantrum is how I would describe the early days of the Tea Party. I'll tell you what, it felt damn good to do that too, right? <laughs> go out on the streets and complain and moan, and by the way, we didn't burn anything or break anything or hurt anybody. We just yelled a lot and we complained a lot. We were pretty loud. We made a big stir in the country. We did something really profoundly important, which is we changed the political narrative in America. People weren't talking about the Constitution. People weren't talking about debt and deficit, long-term structural deficit. People weren't talking about the proper role of the federal government in our lives. So we changed the narrative. I'm really proud of that. 2010, we won the biggest electoral flip in the history of Congress since 1938, right? From Democrat to Republican. And it was so incredible because then everything changed in DC. That was my dream anyway. It didn't happen. And they told us that, you know, that's because we only have the House of Representatives. If we could just get the Senate, if we would just have the Senate, everything would be completely different. And so, you know what? A lot of us, you guys went to work, and you know what we did? We gave them the Senate. It was incredible. And then everything changed in Washington, D.C. No. No, it didn't happen. I dreamed that part, too. It was really exciting when it happened. And then they told us, look, if we could just elect a Republican president if we we just need a Republican at 1600 Pennsylvania just that's what we need because then we can pass the right legislation we can get it done the president will sign it and everything will go back to the way it should be and then we elected a Republican as president and then everything changed in Washington DC except for it didn't These guy's promised for seven and a half years that they would repeal Obamacare. They repealed Obamacare repeatedly when they had both houses. They put it on President Obama's desk knowing full well he would never sign it. And when the moment came when President Trump sat with his pen poised, they did nothing. They did nothing. They lied to us. That's what they did. They've been lying to us for a long time. So here we sit it's 2017, there'll be another election in 2018. They're gonna want us to get really excited about that and they're gonna want us to fight about who's in Congress and we should have that fight. But does anybody believe that electing the right people to office is gonna change the situation? Does anybody really believe that anymore? I don't meet anybody who believes that anymore. You know, cause you just can't keep fooling us over and over with the same pitch and expecting us to believe it. Nobody believes it. So the question is then, is there no hope? Are we just lost? And our civics lessons that we teach in school today would tell us, well, then there really is no hope. We're just lost. We have to just keep doing this cycle over and over. It's like Groundhog Day, elect new people, hope something changes, it doesn't, elect new people. But the founders were much wiser than that, and the founders understood their history, and the founders looked forward into the future, and the founders put a gem inside the Constitution in Article 5 of the Constitution. Mark went through a bunch of the articles, didn't get to Article 5, mentioned it. Here's why Article 5 was such a gem, and here's the history behind it. Going to jump back. The most important day, I would argue, in American history is September 15th. I think that's the most important day in American history because that is my beautiful wife Patty's birthday. <laughs> but it is also what we call Article 5 Day. So I can obviously never forget this, because that's the day George Mason stood and addressed the men there at the Constitutional Convention, two days before the end of that convention. Imagine what it's like. They've been in that room for months. It's hot, it's stuffy, they're almost done, they're getting ready to go home. And he stands up and he says, we have a huge problem. We drafted a document that gives the power to Congress to propose amendments but doesn't give the same power to the people acting through the states. And then he asks a question which to me rings out over the centuries, 230 years across the centuries. I hear this question so clearly and so perfectly, and he says, are we so naive that we believe that a government that becomes a tyranny will propose amendments to restrain its own tyranny? I wish we had video, YouTube, or something, because they all went, ah, God, seriously, and they laughed, right? Because that's ridiculous. No tyrant has ever restrained himself. No tyrannical government has ever restrained itself. There's not one example in all of human history, going back through all of biblical history, where a tyrant one day just says, you know, I have too much power. I think I need to give away my power. Right? That just doesn't happen. And so he asks the question, and he proposes that we put in the second clause of Article 5 that gives you the citizens, the power acting through your state legislatures, great leaders like Linda Santos, who's sitting in here with us, to stand up and to say, you know what? It's time for us to take control. We have the power, you have the power, your legislatures have the power to step up and use Article 5 and call a convention specifically, like Mason said, to restrain federal tyranny. I assume there's universal agreement in this room. Raise your hand if you believe our federal government has become a tyranny. It's a tyranny, we all believe that. So it's time to use the tool that the founders gave us in Article 5. That's where we're at in American history today. You know, today I had a chance to go up to that replica of Independence Hall outside of Rapid City and, and look at the men in that room. If you haven't been there, I highly recommend it. It's really inspiring. Look at them drafting the Declaration of Independence. And at the table, the committee of five, the five guys that were given the task of actually drafting that declaration, one of them at that table, standing at that table in that room is Dr. Benjamin Franklin. And I think about Franklin all the time because he was just cantankerous. Right? He was just, you know, just a curmudgeon and a wit, a really sharp wit. And I imagine myself sitting down in one of Boston's alehouses and having a pint with Dr. Franklin, and I imagine myself whining and complaining about the state of our federal government today. Dr. Franklin, they do this, and they run a healthcare system, and they're involved in our education system. They tell our children they can't pray in school, and they tell us what we believe, and they even tell us, we have indoor plumbing now, Ben, and they tell us what kind of toilets we can have in our houses. And I imagine Franklin saying, "Well, my dear boy, have you tried using Article 5? And I imagine the feeling I would have in that moment, the horror, the embarrassment of knowing that we've never done it and saying, well, you know, we know that. that's just not, we've just, we didn't. And he would say, what do you mean you didn't? Well, I would say, you know, some people are, you know, scared to, to use that. And I imagine that this is what he would say, get out of here go away, I don't wanna hear from you, come back and tell me and my friends what happens after you use the tool we gave you to preserve the republic. Because I did say indeed when I left that hall after we gave you the Constitution, when I was asked what form of government, I said, a republic madam, if you can keep it. And we gave you a tool to keep it. We gave you Article 5 because we knew this time and this day would come. So today is the time and the day that we use Article 5. Today. 12 states have already passed the resolution calling for an Article 5 convention. It takes 34 states to call it. Is it happening? It's already happening. Some people will say it's impossible. It's already happening. That train has left the station, folks. Senator Tom Coburn works with us. I get a chance to be with him every day. He left the United States Senate to pursue this because he says it is the only remedy as big as our problems. Senator Jim DeMint, one of the great freedom fighters in the U.S. Senate, the founder of the Senate Conservatives Fund, the former president of Heritage, now works for us. I have the privilege of working with Jim every day because he says, Jim says this, as he put it in his beautiful southern accent, because they can't fix it under the dome even if they want to. <laughs> they can't. Right? And so people who are way smarter than me, Mark Levin, Mark Levin, Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck, professors from major institutions, all the conservative law professors in America of note, Robbie George at Princeton, Randy Barnett, the great libertarian constitutionalist at Georgetown, all say we have to do this and we have to do it now. It is our only chance to save the republic. And I'm going to close with this because this question is going to come up. Somebody is going to ask the question, well, what about the runaway convention? The left is going to take over this convention, and they are going to take away our constitution. I hear this all over the country. I'm going to be perfectly honest and frank and a little bit impolite and blunt. First of all, the question is, what constitution are you trying to protect? And I need you to really think about this, because that beautiful book that you held up, Mark, that Constitution, that's not our Constitution anymore. That might surprise some people. That's not your Constitution anymore. It's a beautiful, amazing, historic relic. If you want to see it for real, go to the National Archives, it's under glass, you can visit, it's an incredible experience to see that. Right, but our Constitution doesn't look like that anymore. If you want to know what your Constitution looks like, go to the government printing office, the GPO, and you can order this online, i have a copy of it, it's called the Annotated Constitution. 2,738 pages as of its last printing, it weighs over 20 pounds, I have one on my desk, it's that thick, I bought it to travel with, but it's too heavy, it makes my luggage overweight. That's your Constitution. So if you're worried about a runaway convention and you say, I gotta protect the Constitution, remember you're protecting that Constitution. That Constitution has the Obamacare decision in it. That Constitution has the Obergefell decision in it. If you believe people should be free to design define marriage in their own states, well, Obergfell is in that constitution and you're protecting that. That Constitution has all the Commerce Clause decisions in it that say that there can be a Department of Education and a Department of Energy and a Department of Commerce and an EPA that could tell you what to do with the toilets in your house. That's the Constitution you're protecting if you say, well, I'm just protecting the Constitution by saying I'm opposed to an Article V Convention. And then the second thing I would say to you is be very, very careful about the company you keep look at the people who support Article 5, I just named a bunch of them, and then I want you to look at the people who oppose Article 5, because they've made themselves known very boldly recently. You know, on Good Friday, which I think is kind of an important day for Americans, for our culture, for our history, whatever your beliefs. On Good Friday, 230 of the most radical leftist groups in America, led by Common Cause and Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, two George Soros-funded groups put together this coalition. 230 radical leftist groups came out against the Convention of States. So who do you stand with? Do you stand with the NAACP? right? Do you stand with the ACLU? Do you stand with the AFL-CIO, the SEIU, the National Education Association, La Raza, Planned Parenthood? Because all of those people, they're not worried that they can take over the convention and do something liberal with it. They worry, in their own words, that you're going to reverse 115 years of progressive, they say gains, I say insanity. That's what they say. And as if that weren't enough, As if, if you have to choose a camp, right now I'm asking you, choose Article 5 and all those people I told you are in favor, or choose these 230 groups. There was a huge weight that just stepped on the side of these 230 groups in the public arena. This week, in the last seven days. God, I hate to say this name, but her name is Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton just came out publicly attacking Convention of States. This happened in an interview online. There is a podcast on the left called Pod Save Our Country. These are four former Obama advisors, and they interviewed her, and most interestingly is they didn't ask her anything about a convention. They didn't ask her anything about Article 5, but she said they have to be very careful. She brought this up on her own about this nefarious plot by the Koch brothers and the Mercers working with nefarious people on the right to undermine our Constitution, to attack our First Amendment and limit our First Amendment rights, to make sure that our Second Amendment rights are unlimited. Oh, that sounds so outrageous doesn't it? This is what Hillary Clinton is now saying, and she came out a second time this week on a video attacking the Convention of States. So when you say, or if you hear friends or politicians say, hey, you know, there's going to be this runaway convention, I'm worried about the left taking over, I just want you to know that those people are standing with Hillary, with Soros, and with these 230 radical leftist groups. And I didn't say this at the beginning of the movement, but I'm going to tell you right now, there is a line being drawn in America. And the line is this. You are either for the Constitution and for liberty and for the restoration of a constitutional republic, and that means you are for Article 5, or you are with the radical leftist elites and Hillary Clinton and George Soros, and you are against this. And I apologize if that offends anybody, but I can't take it anymore. I want you to think about how nonsensical it is that some people on the right are actually saying the left is going to run away with this convention when everybody on the left is saying that convention can reverse progressivism and we have to stop it. Right? So I'm done having this argument with people. I'm going to tell you, I now just draw the line clearly. If I sit with a legislator, I say, oh, I get it. You're with Hillary and Soros and they get really mad at me, but it's just a fact, right? So that's the Runaway Convention, and then I'm gonna really close with this, which is a philosophical statement about the fight that we're having. All of this can sound really complicated. We go do all this history stuff, talk about Article 5 and Runaway Conventions, and what is Article 5, and how does the convention work, and how many states, and who's in charge, you can get into all this detail, but the fight we're having in America is much simpler than that. The fight that the media wants you to have The fight that the left wants you to have, the fight that the politicians want you to have because it's so profitable and it works so well for them when we buy into it, is a fight about what we should do. Should we have Obamacare? Should we have Medicare? How much welfare should we have? How big should the FDA or the EPA be? How high should corporate? These are fights that they love. They love these fights. They foment these fights. They encourage you to be angry about these fights. And every one of those fights has an underlying premise, and the premise is this, that those decisions will be made by people way smarter than us in Washington, D.C. And if you buy into those fights, that's what you're buying into. Oh yeah, that fight, now I have to call my congressman and tell him to vote correctly on the, they're not gonna do anything. It's a false fight, but here's the real fight we're having in America. We're having this fight. The question facing Americans today is this, who decides? Who decides? It's that simple. It's not about what do we do, it's about who makes the decisions. Do you decide as a self-governing person, you and your family, do you get to decide in your community, in your local school district what your kids will be taught? Do you guys decide here in your own state how land gets used? Does the EPA decide instead? Some bureaucrat who's never been here to South Dakota has no idea what the water's like in South Dakota, what the weather's like, what the rivers are like. Who decides? Who decides? That's the fight we're having in America today. That's the same exact fight the founders were having. And we're going back full circle here. Remember what I said the founders were fighting about, right? It was about this crony capitalism, people who weren't connected to them were making all the decisions. And the founders answered this question very clearly about who decides. Three words begins with we, we the people, right? So if you believe in Article 5, if you believe that now is the time, then you believe in this answer to this question of who decides is we the people decide. because this is the we, the people solution. So thank you guys for hearing me out today. I appreciate you letting me do that big scope of history. And then in a few minutes here, we're gonna open it up to questions. God bless you guys. Thanks for being here. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com pod. Thank you for listening.